I call it operator mindset, where when you're in the product world and you're trying to grow something, you start learning pretty quickly about where is the value being created? Where are we going to put our investment? It's taken me some time to understand what are my strengths and weaknesses? And what am I bringing to the company? What am I bringing to my colleagues? And what are some areas I need to go get to the gym and work out a lot harder on to make sure that I can understand at a full capacity on what are some people from a different background bringing? How can I make sure I'm speaking their language and build those relationships? Welcome to The Pathfinders, the modern dealmaker series brought to you by Ansarada. Now here's your host, Dahani Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to The Pathfinders presented by Ansarada. I'm your host, former NFL player, investor, and entrepreneur, Dahani Jones. Today, I'm joined by Managing Director of Strategic Partnerships at Riskalyze, Clifton Schaller. Before Riskalyze, Clifton spent five years at Morningstar, working his way up from a UX designer to a manager of product growth. Growth is a word I think we're going to say a lot today. It's a topic of expertise and passion for Clifton. A blurb on his website notes that he is transforming the mysterious art of growth. Clifton joins me now to talk all about his journey, his passion for corporate development, and the keys to successful business partnerships. Welcome, Clifton. So happy you're here. I hope you're just as excited as I am to learn all about your background and the journey to where you are today. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me, first and foremost, and excited to dive in. As I was reading through a lot of your background, you know, you've been in a couple of different places. So I want to cover some of your experience. And as I mentioned before, at the top of the show, one of the things that we're going to talk a lot about is growth. And I think whether it's growth of a business, growth as you as a person, as a leader, growth in industries and different sectors. So as listeners are keying in, you're going to hear that word a lot. And Clifton is a master. So first, tell me a little bit about Riskalyze and what you do in your role currently. So Riskalyze is a part of the wealth management and financial industry. So we're servicing advisors and home offices within the industry, specifically for folks that are looking for financial advice. With that said, Riskalyze started out in the industry creating a quantitative measurement to understand risk. And really what that does is really measure risk tolerance. And what we like to call it Riskalyze is we really are in the business to understand how much a client or prospect wants, how much they have, how much they should have, and how much do they need. So when we think about all those different levers, we're telling a story that really helps empower advisors to help investors or prospective clients to invest fearlessly. That's our mission at Riskalyze, to empower the world to invest fearlessly and giving advisors the tools or home office the tools to do and have those conversations. All right. So, you know, the first question I'm going to ask is, what is your risk number and (laughs) how did you tabulate it? Because I'm just thinking to myself, if I'm going on a scale of one to 10, and, and to be honest, I don't know how the number is designed, but if risk is on one side of the spectrum, way over here at one, and no risk is over at 100, in my world, where would you be? And in actuality, what's your risk-alized risk number? It's a great question. I've actually never taken the assessment oh, myself. I but, should. Come on. <laughs> Been busy. Grade me right now. Give me a quick assessment of my own risk number. Oh, man. Internally, we use that phrase all the time. Like, this is a risk 99 or a risk 64 topic or discussion. But to give you an example, one would be cash. So we do our scoring from 1 to 99. And one thing that's really unique and fun is that we've put that risk number into a speed limit sign. 
So it looks like an actual speed limit sign when you're looking at it. So think about the power if you go talk to a financial advisor. And typically the industry, they'd say, hey, look, you might be conservative or slightly aggressive, but let's just say we both walk into the same office and we fill out this questionnaire and you and I are both considered conservative. Well, you and I probably have very different opinions on what it means to be a conservative investor, but we're in these buckets. So what's unique about our offering to the market is that you're really giving an advisor a really great way to give a prospective client or an existing client the power to understand how much risk do I want right now? And that is on a speed limit sign, one being cash. So if I had a portfolio full of cash, it'd be a one. If I had all Tesla, that'd be a 99. If I were maybe a spider <laughs> ETF, maybe a 74, 73, 75. So this really helps advisors understand when they're talking to a prospective client, really that matchup of maybe you're working with an advisor today, maybe you're building your own portfolio, but how much risk do you really want versus how much do you have? And that have is the underlying holdings in a portfolio all scored together. What typically happens is you fill out this assessment, you get a number, and then all of the portfolios or single portfolio comes over. And there's usually a mismatch of how much do you want and how much do you have. And that usually is a great conversation for an advisor, really empowers the advisor to be able to talk to a prospective client or an existing client with what's going on. Right now, you're wanting to take on a lot less risk because of what's going on in the market. But unfortunately, you're in a portfolio that's maybe three or five to 10 more numbers higher of risk than you're willing to take on. Maybe let me manage what's going on because clearly I can understand where you're headed and where you want to be through that lens of risk. So very powerful, very empowering for advisors to use this tool and use our platform to be able to talk about that. And again, really in the business of helping people not make those decisions at the downturn of the market, I'd call it financial or investment psychology of really honing in long-term plan or really how much risk do you need to hit your next goals along your time horizon. See, the way that I think about it is I just wonder what type of car someone drives. <laughs> and if they're going to push the speed limit, then they're heavily into risk. And look, there's nothing wrong with driving a minivan. You can drive a minivan 100 <laughs> miles an hour, but the likelihood of you doing so is going to be pretty low. So you're going to be in a lot of cash. And that's probably because you probably have a, a lot of expenses as well. And I'm going to chalk up, Clifton, you to not having that number right now and not wanting to do the assessment on me is because everybody right now riskalize everything is secret, right? And so I don't want you to spill too many things in the background. So I'm just going to chalk it up to IP and proprietary information. But I would ask you, what is something our listeners might not even realize about risk analysis? Yeah, hence the word, right? Riskalize itself. Generally, when folks in our industry think about our company, it's within the risk and analytics channel. However, we address a lot of workflow at the company. So I'm going to just rattle off a few of them. When we talk about risk analytics, that's typically in the lead gen type of capabilities where you're really going out and trying to generate new business. You're trying to go gain, grow your book of business as an advisor. But we have light financial planning on the platform. I use the word light on purpose because there's huge players in this industry that we play nice with and we're partners with. But we also have investment research. So you're wanting to look and find maybe a ETF or a mutual fund that meets the risk number to really bring down someone's risk. We want to offset that maybe even with some fixed income. Proposal generation. So creating a proposal to put in front of a prospective client to go, look, I've done some analysis or I've put you into a model that I think really best fits where you want to go. How does that look? Again, going back to growing your book of business and servicing more clients, bringing more assets to the, to the company that you're under or to the home office. Trading or balancing. You can trade on Risk Alive. So if you're an advisor that has 
let's, let's use the word authorization to access and implement trades. You can do that on our platform as well. Client engagement, understanding how current clients feel about their portfolio or the market. Really nice indicator to know maybe who's not feeling so great. I should maybe have a call top thing in the morning to understand how are you feeling? I have uh, what we call check-ins, a great little tool for advisors to understand what the sentiment of their clients are. And finally, compliance. I mean, compliance is huge in our industry. We recently brought an exciting new product to market called Command Center. And this is an, a tool essentially to be able to understand compliance within a whole entire home office to look at all of their advisors to see really how many advisors are not rebalancing or readjusting a portfolio based on their clients' needs. So really powerful stuff. We don't try to do everything, but what we do do, we do very well. Mm. And it seems like the partners that you have are excited about what you're able to do because even as someone that has money managed, I'm always incredibly curious about how the market sees me and how I see the market, right? Risk is everything. I don't have any fast cars, Clifton, just letting you know. (laughs) I do have some fast bicycles and I do try to beat the speed limit at times, but I got to do what I got to do. Even before you were at Riskalyze, you were at Morningstar for five years and you were in UX design and eventually worked your way up to the role of manager of product growth. How does your skill and knowledge from that time at Morningstar pull into Riskalyze? Because it just, in my mind, and maybe some others, it might seem as like a dramatic twist and a dramatic turn of events, so to speak. Yeah. So let's break these into two buckets. First is the industry itself. So working at Morningstar built a very strong foundation with the financial services industry. So as you could see, I did a lot of bouncing around at the company, which some might say was tough for me in some ways. And some might say it really pushed me and challenged me in some ways as well. I think it's a real testament to the entrepreneurial spirit, really following opportunities and following conviction of where I think I can add the most value to the company. So great foundation, great company. But that really propelled, I think, to get me into a position where I'm at today, to be able to look at the landscape. It's what I call almost like a tech ecosystem of who all the players are out there or companies that are growing, shrinking for sale, not for sale, to really understand the strategic rationale on fit, placement. Why might we do this? What is the real value creation? It's one thing to look at it from a maybe, say, a, a revenue synergy point of view, but having knowledge and expertise in the product space into what it takes to service or bring something to market, I would say definitely helped me build a significant amount of time working within the same industry and going and staying within the industry. So we service a lot of the similar clients and it is a small industry. I know it seems quite large to maybe your average listener, but at the end of the day, it's a very small and very connected community. So still in touch with a lot of close colleagues from there as well, but it really helped propel in a lot of ways for me to get to where I am today. Second bucket is UX, right? I mean, people sometimes look at me and say, very unconventional background. Now I say, hey, when I was in UX, I really was doing a lot of research. And for those out there that don't know what UX, that's user experience. Correct. I like saying now, like, hey, I went from talking to individual advisors and trying to understand their needs and gaps to now talking to management teams and using a similar cap and relationship building type of skill set to really understand What's going on at your business? Where are you headed? Where are you growing? And, and trying to develop and foster a relationship with a founder or a management team or a board member to understand, hey, is one plus one equal two or three? Let's talk about where you're headed. And this really fits the profile of firms that really work for us. And, and I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. So some things are not applicable in some ways, but having a sense for good design and having a good sense for adoption and trying to have a gut feeling if we're looking at maybe a potential 
company of what is their UI or UX experience? How much time have they spent on design? I would not say it's a complete <laughs> builder compared to most of the people I work with in the room, but it does, I'd say, give you a unique advantage when looking at whether it's customer sentiment or customer feedback, able to really look at a different lens on how might we merge these two firms together or what might the post-merger integration work look like based on the technology stack they have or what their workflows are. What do we want to keep? What might move? So very unconventional. I get that a lot. But you know what? That's okay. Coming from a different perspective sometimes I think is great from a different point of view in a room full of a lot of people that have a similar background. You'll, you'll definitely get no arguments from me about that because I think that sometimes the most opportune points of view are given by those that first entered the forest, so to speak, right? A lot of people have been down in the weeds. They've been looking at the trees for so long and then all of a sudden someone comes along and they're like, you know, you need to think about it this way. And I think that's how you add to that tool belt of those experiences in order to kind of add value to the growth of the business. If it doesn't work, it just frankly doesn't work. And maybe some people are not even qualified to understand that. But if you're able to do that because you're able to understand the workings behind it, then you kind of create a whole different experience. And I think that is to the benefit of the business. And you also have a passion for corporate development. So I'm just painting this mosaic for people. So when did you discover that passion? Because we have product growth and now we're in a corporate development. So we're almost halfway down the road and we still haven't filled out everything that is Clifton. <laughs> yeah, I think that coming from the product space, it's given me a great foundation for understanding being the center spoke of a wheel. When you're ultimately accountable and responsible for growing a product, you're interacting with tons of different teams around the ecosystem to help support and grow from sales and marketing to customer success to the technology groups. All those folks, you start building and developing relationships. So I call it operator mindset, where when you're in the product world and you're trying to grow something, you start learning pretty quickly about where is the value being created? Where are we going to put our investment or chips? I usually say, where are the chips going? And really, ultimately, where do we want to go? Where are we taking this thing? And how hard is it going to be to get there? So when I talk to folks right out of school, IB, investment banking background, or directly into private equity, definitely a different background, right? But it's taken me some time to understand what are my strengths and weaknesses? And what am I bringing to the company? What am I bringing to my colleagues? And what are some areas I need to go get to the gym and work out a lot harder on to make sure that I can understand at a full capacity on what are some people from a different background bringing? How can I make sure I'm speaking their language and build those relationships? So the product guy coming into the room typically has a huge leg up on the technology piece and the operating piece, but usually the financial piece, you didn't come from it. It's not something you worked in all the time, but when you're at product growth, you're looking at top line and bottom line growth. I mean, that's the, <laughs> the bottom line and really trying to understand how might we bring things to market. So the go-to-market framework, and a lot of these pieces really add nicely to when you look at it from a corporate development piece on if we were to go buy or acquire an asset, what are we going to do with it? And how is that going to work? So the very operational type of thinking comes in on making sure we're being as efficient and quick as possible to capitalize on an investment and realize energies as quick as possible. And it's not easy and it's not rocket science when you're thinking about these mergers and acquisitions, especially when the languages, so to speak, are not necessarily the same. Even if you're coming from the same country, you could be coming from a different region and that cultural heritage may not fully integrate completely. So it's always a challenge. And the fact that you speak multiple languages and have come from multiple backgrounds, that's a key and critical. But what would you say is like the biggest challenge facing modern corporate development, especially with teams? I've had plenty of discussions and I have my opinions. 
I think the one thing is the most difficult, in my opinion, is that there's a layer of humility that a lot of times companies don't necessarily have. And when they kind of meet in the middle, there's this, I guess you could call it peacocking, right? It's like, oh, what what I have is better. No, no, no. What I have is better. No, what we've created is better. No, no, no. We should lead this. But that's my opinion. What's yours, Clifton? Oh, man. Great point. Two points here. One is on the external point is that it's a very guarded and gated community. People are always looking for a leg up to learn something, to get a better deal, get a better number, better valuation, whatever it may be. So it, it tends to be something that you can't just walk up to someone and have a conversation with and just say, hey, tell me the answers here to give us an advantage. It takes time, it takes development, it takes trust. The thing that pops in my head out of the gate is just culture. Really hard to measure culture, which tends to be one of those areas that makes or breaks a merger and acquisition. And there's not a lot of either technology or tools to really measure it, capture it. How do you know? I mean, you can look at an employee NPS score, you can look at customer satisfaction on the internet or talk to maybe some suppliers. But ultimately, how do you know without walking in the door of a company being in a remote lifestyle, what's the culture of this company? Does it fit our culture? I think the culture really is at the heart of, is this something we really see fitting? You can look at the top line, bottom line growth numbers, you can look at CapEx, OpEx, you can go and spend as much time there as possible. But if you're acquiring or merging with the culture, it just doesn't fit. That's really tough. Now, I'm very grateful to work with experts in the industry and have an extremely brilliant CEO that really can put the finger up in the wind and is right almost all the time. And that's a really tough one, is really how to understand what are the odds and what are the stakes if we're right on this culture? That's one for sure. And then contracts. Now, that sounds really bland, but man, I've seen some disasters in my time of not scrubbing contracts and then being stuck with something because you're under contract for five to six to 10 years. And I'm going to do a deep enough diligence on the contracting side because, man, once you start looking at paper for hours and hours at a time, it all starts to blur <laughs> and <laughs> it becomes something that you just have to pound the pavement to make sure you've done a very ample governance on what we're looking to potentially acquire. So paper, culture, and then it's just a tough industry to get warm out of the gate. It just takes time to develop those relationships and build trust. I think you just hit on the most important piece and that's the culmination of that culture. It's the culmination of those contracts. And I'm not a lawyer. So <laughs> neither am I. When I see words on a piece of paper, they just blur anyways. I just nine times out of 10 put a book underneath my pillow and that's how I <laughs> absorb the information. But that's just me. I'm a little bit of a different type of guy. But I think one of the things, especially around this culture piece, and for those that don't know you that well, tell everybody how many countries have you lived in? I have to go off the topic just a little bit, but I think it's important for people to understand your background. You've lived in a lot of different places. Just name them off. So everybody's <laughs> like, what, 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 what? Oh, man. Well, let me first preface that sometimes when you live as a nomad, sometimes you really take for granted the people that can say, like my wife, that's from one part of the country and has lived there their entire life. And they have friends since they were in grade school. I don't, definitely do not have that. Yeah, I moved around a lot as a kid through my parents. And then I went to undergraduate school, spent some time in Florence, Italy. I'm an Italian citizen. Spent some time there. I lived in Africa for a while in the middle of what do I want to do with my life in college? And maybe it should take some time to go figure something out. Went over there and did a bunch of construction work and building, which was nuts. Got a lot of parasites. <laughs> but it was eye-opening and extremely great life lessons learned in Africa and Zambia. Drove all over the southern part of Africa. Saw a lot. Saw elephants crossing a road, just driving down the road. You're not in a zoo. You're just in the middle of Africa. It's surreal. And in graduate school, I went to school at the University of Bologna in Italy. Did a little bit of time in Argentina as well. And now I'm in Toronto. So five countries, I think that sounds right, including the States, a couple states as well. So 
have seen a lot. And I tell people that it really has shaped my life. It shaped my worldview of viewing people do things as simple as eating to business and how people do things and different perspectives and ideas. It used to be a huge struggle, always feeling like you're picking up and moving somewhere. But now you kind of realize going back to that operator mindset, I can jump right in and I'll be okay. And I'll figure it out. I'll land on my feet and I know who I am and what I appreciate in this world. And I'm a very curious person and like people. So seek people out that have common interest and maybe learn a thing or two along the way. So yeah, it's, it's been a journey to say the least. <laughs> well, I think that's the key. You talk about culture before, and I think that's summarized by some of the different places that you've lived. I think curiosity at the core of it is why you continue to add value and allow companies to thrive and allow companies to grow because of that curiosity. And I think in a lot of ways that's missing on so many different fronts. And some people might say technology is the thing that got in the way that prevented people from inviting themselves into the world of being curious. But it's fine. It's not necessarily all technology's fault, and maybe part of it. But speaking of technology, what role does technology, in your opinions, play in supporting and speeding up that journey? If we're getting into the details, you talked about paper, right? You talk about those contracts. We're, we're going back to the story, right? What, what role does technology play in supporting speeding up that journey from letter of intent to close? We're a smaller company. So being someone in-house that goes from deal sourcing all the way to post-merger integration, there's a lot of technology you touch along the way. So I'll start at the very front of it all is that having some sort of CRM or a way to really track who you've talked to is extremely important to make sure you're following up with people in an ample amount of time. That could be anything from using an M&A software or not only keep track of your own pipeline, but make sure that our CEO and management team are aware of who are you developing relationships with? How are they going? Any status update on such and such? And I'll break those people out into different levels along the journey. As things kick up, you'll start seeing stuff like a virtual data room pop into the mix here, which is extremely important to speed things up. And I think that one thing that I'm extremely passionate about with technology is technology really enables and empowers you to be much more efficient with your time. I studied econ, so I cannot ever get rid of the word scarcity. It takes rent in my head, but there's only so many hours in the day and people are very busy. You'll come across teams or management groups that you're having conversations with where their financials are maybe not as much in order and some people are just extremely well-polished. You'll come across investment bankers that have put together 80 slide decks that you need to go through in a short amount of time. So technology helps save those valuable hours. And I always try to shoot for when reaching out to our management group or to our CEO, like how can I reduce an unbelievable amount of information into a very bite-sized, I always say three, five, seven, ten bullets as fast as I can to get him whatever he needs to understand where we're at and where we might head. So technology is incredible. One of the hardest ones on the technology piece is just good data. There's so much data out there and how accurate the data is. I tend to take the approach, the best way to get information about a prospective partnership or a prospective acquisition is to really just go meet the person, have a conversation, start diving deep, get under NDA and really start peeling back some questions and just getting it word of mouth is what we tend to put a lot of time on. But when you're doing lots of deals, I mean, there's all kinds of technology out there to help speed that up and be able to look at something from what's available in the marketplace from valuations or when is the last time they've raised capital and who's on the management team. Stuff even as simple as getting email access to a founder or management team to email to do an outreach call. There's a lot out there, but I tend to be pretty standard of just warm relationship. And I, I have to be honest, I'm coming from the fintech space. So I've got a bias for financial technology and it might be very different for oil and gas or for consumer packaged goods, a very different world. But for us in, in our industry, 
I got to be honest, it really helps when you have a really well-liked and trusted company brand name, and you have a very strong and very well-liked CEO. So that to me is a huge advantage rather than having to do a lot of cold calling. People don't know who you are or who's leading the company or your direction. I'm very fortunate to work somewhere that is very open in the market of who we are, where we're headed, and we're very open and honest on how grateful we are for the people that we serve and those we'll serve next. So it's very helpful with opening doors to start conversations. So we're talking about how we're trying to move people through the funnel so that they can actually get to the point where these companies meld and and they mesh and you're using culture in order to kind of allow them to grow as a business. You're taking from different parts of your experience. What about post-acquisition integration? You've done all this hard work. You've done all this legwork. You've read all through all these documents. Just give me one key thing that you always keep in mind after the deal is done. One thing? Okay. It's day one readiness. It's getting ready for even if this deal post LOI is not going to close, getting the troops ready for execution on day one. When these two companies come together or the acquisition takes place, I think of it from an efficiency standpoint. If you're not prepared and you're not ready to roll on that day one every single day, I'm looking at a Gantt chart in my head. It's going to just get bigger and bigger and bigger like a snowball. And my experience, I've seen just rough post-merger integrations. I've seen people do extremely well post-merger integration that it's inspiring or keeping companies completely siloed off and under one umbrella company, but they kind of operate as their own. I've seen a mix of a lot. But day one, readiness and preparation and getting the team ready for what's ahead. So documentation, getting the team ready for a playbook on how do we do this? What is our culture towards this? How can we bring in new family members to the company? How can we treat them with our culture and the way we do things and make them feel just like us and get ready for expectations on what are the synergies out in front of us or what is the value creation in front of us and how are we going to go measure that and capture that? That's got to be really tight before this thing gets announced publicly day one so that we have a laser focus, get after it. That to me is probably the most important thing because it's like buying a house. And once you've bought that house, you walk inside and you start peeling back maybe some drywall or peeling back some tile, you might find some things you didn't see in the report. So being prepared to the plan for if this happens, we've got a subcontractor or we've got someone in line to take care of this so that we don't have a cascading effect of delays and problems because all that costs money and time and pushes you further, further away from the desired outcomes or the end state that you're after. Yeah, I can align myself with this notion of the playbook because anytime you join a new athletic team, a football team, basketball team, baseball team, they have that playbook. And that's what makes sure that whomever that's joining the team is aligned, right? So they, they know this is how we've been doing things. Now, I will also say that sometimes there's a new piece to the puzzle that's added that characteristically can change some notes of that playbook. But generally speaking, that's what it is. And that's the team that you've joined. As you think about it from a managing position, specifically around strategic partnerships, what's the biggest factor in determining a successful partnership, right? You talked about the playbook. You talked about the pieces. You talked about peeling back the onion. This is the house, the plaster, right, that (laughs) that you've bought. What's the biggest factor in determining successful partnerships? And then juxtapose against, like, what's the biggest mistake you see people making when it comes to forming an nurturing those very partnerships. I love the phrase, try before you buy. We can't, Clifton, you can't always do that. You can't just like buy part of a company, Clifton. You got to go full board. Come on. 
Tell me what's up. It's true. But if you can, right, because that really unveils and really shows you how do we really work together without a huge amount of risk or disruption before saying we're going to buy our way into some revenue or buy your technology or buy people that we really think will help us grow our top line. So at the end of the day, the partnership really is at a decision point where we see areas and opportunities in the market that we don't necessarily either have the talent or the time or the investment opportunity to go and go spend a lot of time and risk to build something. So rather than investing our time and effort into diving really deep into something, we're probably better off servicing a partnership to really play nicely because there's a high probability that we service either very mutual clients or there's a pipeline of clients that we both would like to bring on board to both of our companies. So kind of that network effect of joining forces, getting stronger. And where I'm at today at Riskalyze, we have a ton of partnerships and integrations, which is, I think, a huge competitive advantage. If you're an RIA or an independent broker dealer, and you're looking at all the different pieces of technology in the ecosystem, knowing that there's one out there that plays nicely and the data flows efficiently and effectively with a lot of others, that helps your advisor save time. That helps your home office ultimately know that I'm reducing my swivel chair as an advisor from opening one screen to the next screen to the next screen. So partnership really helps, I would call it, reduce the moat for some firms. So when I think about a mutual client that maybe our firm and maybe another firm are interested in, maybe us playing together nicely will help alleviate the possibility of, yeah, let's sign up. Let's bring our advisors onto your technology. So it opens up a higher percentage to grow without necessarily a larger investment because research and development and technology is expensive and it takes a lot of time to do. So we look at it from a channel and or a total addressable market perspective. And there's people in those markets that are industry drivers and leaders. And sometimes it's best to play within the sandbox and join forces than it is to try to build everything because it's expensive and takes time. So let's do what we're really great at and double down on our growth engine and what we're known in the market and continue to bring innovative technology to continue to offer ultimately larger and larger firms our services. So I think the partnership starts there, but it also can lead into like a joint venture where there's now revenue involved, more distribution network is powerful. Getting one firm to open the population of your customers to theirs, that's another way to look at it. So competitive advantages is kind of the way I look at it. And how might we go look at a supplier differently if we're both using the same vendor? Maybe we come together and say, hey, look, we work really hand in hand on opportunities. Maybe we can lower our costs. Lots of ways to look at it. But partnerships, it can start with just one singular partnership and we derive value out of us working together or it can be a connection, an ecosystem of partners to really help service the mutual clients within our industry. As we start to wind down, two more questions, because you just have such a wealth of knowledge and information. And by the way, just for other people's edification, Clifton's also like a consummate fly fisherman, and he's also got an olive oil company. So there's just like so many things that you have that just create this embodiment of someone that is behind the desk or behind the screen, if you will, or behind the microphone that is culturally shaped from a world perspective. And that's, in my opinion, what allows for this ultimate notion of growth. So, but two more questions. One is, what is a key component to a deal-making mindset? I always ask my guests on this podcast about the idea of having a deal-making mindset. What do you believe is a key factor to having a deal-making mindset? I think it's one of my strengths. It's being an arranger. There's always the dance, right? There's always gonna be a dance being done when you're going to look at to be a deal, whether that's deal sourcing or deal completion. 
And you've got to be able to arrange the table in a certain way to make sure that one, you can continue a conversation and maybe unveil a few things that aren't on paper, aren't inside of that deck that an investment banker has created. So I think at the end of the day, you've got to be able to arrange and be able to make a deal. What is it going to take for us to really move this thing forward? And it really requires flexibility and it helps to be very contextual. Looking, I mean, some of this stuff has not changed for years. A lot of things you can go pick up and learn from the industry. You can go learn from a company that's publicly traded and doing huge acquisitions in a completely different industry or market, like oil and gas, for an example. You can go learn contextually, how do they do this deal? And listening to people on podcasts or books speak on, you know, here's what it really took to get the deal done. And you'll hear crazy stuff. Like we had this huge formal meeting, we went to dinner, and then the person asked me about what am I doing in my spare time? And then at that moment, the seller found out that we'd be a great cultural fit based on the two CEOs of the firms. Sometimes you just never know, but you've got to have that arranger mindset on what is it going to take and what is in the best interest of your firm that you're representing to make sure that you're either not overpaying and really strapping yourself too thin, poor execution and integration, lack of a strategic plan, or poor due diligence. Pretty table stake stuff, but just making sure all of those things are topped up and we're clear on where we want to go and you got to bring all that to the arranging deal-making mindset, as you called it. I love that. An arranger. I always like to think of myself as just simply a, a caddy. I just like to carry other people's <laughs> bags and go a little bit farther into the distance and make sure I know where the ball is going to land. So that's my deal-making mindset. I just like to be out there on the range. So as we come to a close, Clifton, again, thank you so much for being here. I always like to end the podcast by asking what I like to call is meals and deals. So where was it that you had that dinner where I'm sure you had your chinquamani olive oil, right? I'm sure you had the chinquamani olive oil. You started that in 2012. I'm sure you had it on the table. So where was the dinner that you made the best deal? Where was the best place that you had your meal, as we call it, our meals and deals? Oh, man. Definitely the best deal would be had in Bologna. When talking with my professor at the time at the University of Bologna and saying and mentioning that after I'm done with this, I really want to go dive deeper into the olive oil industry. I have family in Sicily. This is a passion of mine. And that was at an opportunity where someone really pushed me to say, if you're not going to follow your dreams, you're never going to be happy. And at the point in time, I thought to myself, this is what I'm going to do. This is where I'm going to spend my time and my vocation. But to be completely honest and transparent with you, this is my passion. Corporate development, I, I realized it's a combination of so many different skill sets and so many different passions combined into one. I could not be happier. But if I were also being completely transparent, at some point in my life, it's never going to go away. I definitely want to be in a place where you can come visit me in Sicily and we'll have some olive oil or some bread or some pasta. And it's something that I just, it's in my soul. I'm so passionate about olive oil itself. And then, of course, our, my family's identity in Sicily as well. So it takes me back to Bologna. So thank you for taking me back to that restaurant right there in the center of town. Clifton, I will meet you for dinner soon, my friend. So thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Grateful to be here. Thanks again. Special thanks again to Clifton Charlotte for being with us today. His passion for corporate development is downright contagious. I can't wait to see what he does next. If you're enjoying the Pathfinders, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find the show. Until next time, I'm Donnie Jones, and this has been the Pathfinders, presented by Ansarada. Hold up. 